Welcome to this episode of Unbiasedly Speaking with your host, Tracy Spears, and her guest, Deborah McDaniel. Thank you so much for joining us today on Unbiasedly Speaking. My name is Tracy Spears, and I am with my guest, Debbie McDaniel, or is it Deborah McDaniel? Daniel, what do you want to be called? It's Deborah, but to you, it's just Debs. All right, Debs is good. So, Debs, welcome. So glad that you are taking a few minutes to uh, join our audience today because you have quite a story. And I, I want to jump in and kind of talk about it. So, are there any ground rules, anything you don't want to talk about today? There was so much off the table in my early life. Nothing's off the table now. I love that about you because you are what you see is what you get, yep. right? So you just said my early life wasn't like that. So let's bring the listeners up to date. Why was it not like that for you early on? I don't remember real early on. I do know that before I was raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, um, my dad worked for NASA. We lived in Houston and he decided to leave that career to become one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And my life took an abruptly harsh turn when he made that choice. And so immediately there was secrets in play in our life and you couldn't celebrate holidays any longer and you couldn't associate with worldly people. You couldn't, um, you couldn't have friends of any kind that were outside the organization. You didn't get to pay attention in particular classes in school because they were anti-government. Governments were about to be destroyed. But, um, everyone's about to die in your life. It's not a Jehovah's Witness. So it just became really strange really quickly. Well, just like this podcast did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to bring you down yeah, on a Tuesday oh, morning. No, listen, I know this story, but every time I, we have a conversation about it, I get it at a different level because um, the, I didn't know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses until I met you. I knew they existed. I knew they were probably knocking on our trailer door at some point, um, but all of the things that have unfolded. So I want to unpack that just a little bit. You wrote a book called Out With Consequences. Yes. And so the Out With Consequences is about coming out as a lesbian or is it about coming out of Jehovah's Witness? Um, actually, a little bit of a play on words there because what the witnesses were guilty of when I was a part of that organization as a small child um, they never suffered consequences for what they did and covered up and were a party party to. And at the same time, when I went forward to police with what happened in that organization, I was, I had come out slowly and carefully when I was younger. I came out very forcefully about the same time I went to the police with what the organization covers up. So it was both. It was out with consequences for them because they never had to suffer them. And it was, and I suffered swift consequences for coming out and leaving the organization. So you became a Jehovah's Witness at the, I believe the books in you, we've talked about at uh, the age of seven, is that? Yes. Okay. And so, so you live this very kind of normal storybook life up until the age of seven, let's say dad's working at NASA, mom. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, nothing abnormal. What happens to create um, and move a family into that religion? What happened? Well, my dad was an Apollo engineer. He was drafted specifically to work on the Apollo missions. So he was very, very tight with Neil Armstrong and Wally Shira and other men that we were taught to revere. And so we did kind of live this idyllic 
what I thought was an idyllic life. They were going to put a man on the moon. It was the 60s and um, I was born in 69. So it was 69, 70, that era. But the problem with that was my dad was so devoted to NASA and the, the Houston, we have a problem era of time that he didn't leave NASA much. And so my mom was very unhappy. And when witnesses came calling, she just, um, you can basically tell my dad, you can get on board with a new kind of life or you can not have me. And so the witnesses offered her, she studied with the witnesses first, they offered her what sounded like um, an answer. And, and they do very much, they, they have that brand down. They'll offer an answer for anything you're suffering in your life, loss or sadness, depression, they're gonna offer you something better. And so my dad started studying with them and quickly bought into the whole scenario and left NASA for the witnesses. So looking back with your adult brain, does that surprise you about your dad? It doesn't. And a lot of people ask me that. Dad is a brilliant, absolutely brilliant man. But he is, um, he's a ladder climber. And so, and he adores my mother. So I think he initially started the witnesses for her, but Jehovah's Witnesses are an organization where ladder climbing is key. If you want to be an important Jehovah's Witness, you'll start climbing that ladder. And because of who he was with NASA, the witnesses took him in like a rock star and he was a celebrity. You know, they published his life story in the Watchtower magazine in the eighties. And from that point on, he was, he was a rock star in that organization. Oh, wow. I, so I, I didn't, I didn't remember that piece of it. So the notoriety ends up being the, the fuel for him yep. in your estimation. And yep. so your mom, what she gets out of that is um, just community, right? Which I, uh, obviously you're down in Houston. Maybe she didn't feel like she was part of the community or? Mother um, lived for her children pretty much. Even in the organization, she didn't adapt to a lot of friendships in there. Um, she did appreciate the community and the hope of something better. Her, she never knew who her dad was. Her mother didn't want her and tried to abort her. And so family, just the, the insular family feeling of my brother, sister, and I, and dad, she liked just that. She didn't allow a lot of other people inside. But the thought of a, living on a paradise earth away from wicked people really was something she clung to. She didn't like the door-to-door -door work that they insist you do. She never did like that. Um, but she loved the hope of living in a world better. And that's what witnesses promise. Well, that sounds actually pretty good right now. <laughs> a world away from wicked people, right? If only they, if only it were so. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, there's that, right? There's, yeah. there's a little disconnect there. So, so you become a Jehovah's Witness. Now you have uh, siblings, you're the middle child, only right. three of you. Right. Three and so everybody converts and you move, correct? Is that how you end up in Oklahoma? My parents, my dad's parents lived in Neshoba, Oklahoma, tiny, tiny little town. And my mother became very depressed very quickly um, because she went from Houston and a very, very active social life with astronauts and the Playboy Club and things like that to Neshoba, Oklahoma. That, my dad chose that town because his parents were there and she hated it. So they moved to McAllister, which was the lesser of two evils. Um, and she never, she never loved that either. She was kind of a big city girl. 
forced into a small town life, but thinking this 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 wicked system is about to end. So let me just hang on and teach my kids to do that too. I can't even imagine. So I, I, obviously the the trauma that that happened for you in that environment. Um, but let's tell a little bit about your story. So everything seems to be going pretty well um, for from your perspective. You're very entrenched in the Jehovah's Witness, but you left a couple of times. So tell us about the first time that you decided to leave. Well, from early on, I felt like I was kind of a freak because I never really fit in. I dressed different. I acted different. I thought different, a little bit outside the norms of what Jehovah's Witnesses expect. So when I was 18, I was disfellowshipped from the organization. So disfellowshipped with the witnesses is when they approach you with what they perceive to be wrongdoing and you don't um, humble yourself and repent sufficiently to be allowed to stay within the congregation. So they make an announcement that you're not to be talked to. There's an instant shunning that takes place. Your family won't speak to you on the street. Um, so at 18, I did that. Um, I went to Dallas, I had won a modeling competition and went to Dallas to model, got a, a small contract there and just missed my family so desperately and so badly. I went through the repentance process. That's six months to a year, typically, of trying to get your family back. You go to the meetings, you sit on the back row, you don't try to talk to anyone. Um, you see your family, but you're not allowed to interact with them. And then the elders meet on a regular basis about your case and decide whether or not to let you back in. I'm just picturing um, the at the age of 18, the idea that you have the whole world ahead of you, you're in a modeling contract, you, that, that's, a, that's a moment that could have gone very differently for you. And instead of being able to embrace that, to go back to McAllister, Oklahoma, um, gosh, what a tough choice that was for you though, family or no family. I know you well enough to know you're gonna choose family on, in, on those things though, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I missed them so badly and it wasn't like in my mind I believed still everything they were teaching I thought I just wasn't good enough to conform to the standard so I'm thinking yeah this will be nice for a year or two I can work and establish my own life it was more of a rebellious thing to leave but you're still thinking the world's going to end any minute and that means me that that means I have to be destroyed because the wicked have to be destroyed to make room for a perfect paradisaic earth. And so it's always this, you know, you're trying to weigh it out in your head. Do I want to be happy and live a life? Do, I mean, I want to be with this woman, but it's, you know, it's never going to last. So why put all your eggs in that basket? So it's a constant tear at your heart. You keep saying the world's going to end. So uh, for people that don't know about the religion, can you just, and I, don't, I know you don't want us, you don't want to give us and educate us on that religion, but what yeah. does that mean? What, give me some context. At 18, you think the world's going to end because? Because witnesses, and it was very ingrained in me to believe that Jehovah, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a there was something that went wrong with his otherwise perfect creation when Satan tempted them. So Jehovah has just been letting everyone kind of prove their worth to him since then. And those who choose Jehovah's Witnesses um, have the opportunity to live forever in a paradise earth the way God intended it with Adam and Eve. If, you, if a witness comes to your door, Tracy, and you reject their teachings, then you have signed your own death warrant. 
And so while they don't believe or teach that the planet will be destroyed, they believe that you and I, even if we're trying our damnedest to be decent people, that's still not okay if you don't agree to become a witness. So you're imminent, your death is imminent as is mine. And it doesn't have anything to do with gay or straight. It's, you know, the Baptist down the street who just loves her family and husband and all that. She's still not a baptized witness, so she has to go too. Wow. So that's the assumption that I always lived under. It seemed reasonable to me that the earth could be turned back into a paradise if that was God's intention originally. Well, you know. yeah, and especially at that age, it's reasonable because that's what you were raised to believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's a little bit mind boggling, but I know there's a lot of people listening, whatever their religious background is, there's a piece of that that they can relate to right there's some some piece that well that's the what we were always told and yeah so i can connect with you on that space what i can't connect to is you go you have to go back and spend six months not even interacting with your family the shunning piece well there's a lot i can't connect to but that piece is so damaging and what we know now you know what that does to a young person um, and not feeling like you are part of something. I mean, do you look back on that now? How do you feel about that, knowing that that's what you did? And But you actually went back into the program. Can I call it a program? <laughs> you can. Yeah, it's the organization is what most, most ex-witnesses would call it, the organization. How long did um, you go of, when you went back? How long did you stay? I stayed in the organization and went door to door and was a very good witness for another... I didn't leave until I was 40 years old. Listen, I, you know, I've read the book. I know you, I know the story that that's a 22 year, right? When you, knowing yeah. what you know, you got a little taste of the world, wasn't what you thought it was gonna be maybe, but mm -hmm. you go back into it. So you, the gr greatest thing that comes out of that is you get married and you have Oliver, right? right. So, right. so you were married for how long? 15 years. And he was an elder? He was ultimately an elder, yes, in the organization. It was a very, um, Oliver will tell you now, he said, I knew even from when I was T-9 that your marriage wasn't like other marriages that I saw. Like I knew something, I said, did it have anything to do with me sleeping in the other room or, and he said that, but it was just even how you acted around one another. I could just tell that it wasn't where you wanted to be and that you were sad a lot. He just thought, and I was teaching him, that's the worst part of it. I was teaching him that witnesses had the truth and that if we just bide our time, nobody's life is perfect. And my mother was the example of that, that she wasn't happy, but she just thought if she bided her time, she could see, see paradise if she handled it the way Jehovah wanted her to. Mm -hmm. And it's really proof that if you insulate yourself to one belief, that you, you become, you adapt to whatever you have to, to survive in that. And yeah. so I did, I, what I knew is I didn't want to lose my family again. And so when I met my wife, who is now my wife and told my mother that I was crazy about this woman, she said, but the end is so close. If you could just, please don't leave me. She, interesting, she never said, please don't leave Jehovah. Please don't leave the organization. She said, please don't leave me because she was my best and dearest friend. 
And so sometimes I daily, probably I worry about her, that she's still in something that's, it's not coming to pass the way she said it would. They said we would never graduate high school before the end came. And it's come and gone and we weren't allowed to vote. We weren't allowed to have a college education. We weren't allowed friends, proms, football games, none of that. There was no celebration of any of that. And no, and no birthdays, is that, that's correct, right? Never had a birthday celebration until Crystal threw me my first birthday party at 40. And that even felt weird. And, you know, she wanted me to celebrate Christmas. So the Christmas tree went up in the front window. And my only thought was, if my mother drives by and see that, she'll be devastated. I can't, can't do that. Oh, and what a birthday party that was, I bet. <laughs> she had pin the tail on the donkey and all the kids games at 40. I was all about it. I love that. But, but I felt a little guilt, you know, you never had one before, so you don't know if it's right. Gosh. So does that still play in the back of your mind? Is there still a conflict for you about some of the um, new, tra- new or the traditions you and Crystal live out compared to your family? Is there, or, or have you really turned the page on that? I've turned the page on that. What I haven't been able to turn the page on, even in spite of counseling, is the residual um, Armageddon coming in the back of your mind. So a lot of my um, fears, I remember when I left first at 18 and I would be parked under an overpass at a stoplight or something, because they teach, because we'd always ask, how will Jehovah destroy all the wicked? How will they, will they just die, just drop dead? Or, um, and they would say, well, take for example, like a bridge, you know, somebody could be going over a bridge or under a bridge and Jehovah could just drop that bridge and they would be dead instantly. And there may be mass happenings like that. So to this day, where we used to live, to go to that stoplight, you had to get under a bridge. And I would, this, you can't, you don't even have control over it. It's just a panic that sets in. Yeah. And it kind of, it, it's very irritating because I feel like this time that I've been disfellowshipped, it's for intellectual reasons. Like, I know you are not correct. Whereas before it was rebellion. And rebellion doesn't last a lot of times for young people. And so that residual stuff that hangs on is just really frustrating. Yeah, that's a great distinction, though, because your motive was different, which is why it has lasted this time, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you know better, you do better or whatever the the saying is. So you leave at 40. um, And and I'm going to go back and say, I'll never go under that bridge now without thinking about that. Another bridge. (laughs) talking about uh another route home tracy (laughs) those those things do get really big in your brain though even though your your adult self says that's but you still yeah it's it still is traumatizing right yep yeah do you want to talk about oliver today or is that the table so table for me Okay, so do you want to tell us a little bit about him he's an amazing uh son but what else you want to tell us Oliver is a member of the transgender community. Oliver um, doesn't mind people knowing that. So that's why I'm okay with saying that. The documentary they did on our path, we kind of struggled with that because, you know, a worldwide acknowledgement of that was um, something he wasn't ready to do at the time. Like a lot of transgender people, he doesn't really want to be the spokesman for that. He just wants to move on with his life. Uh, For Crystal and I, It took a long time, even though we were what we considered leaders in the LGBT community, 
as far as locally, I mean, we just didn't really want, it was very hard to come to grips with. Like gay issues we were all about, even transgender issues, but then it hits in your own house and it brings about a set of problems that you go, you know, this isn't what I wanted for your path. This is gonna be a difficult. And I started to hear my mother's voice ring in my head as she was saying, I understand your feelings, but that makes your life so much harder and that's what I don't want for you. And so then I was like, oh, I was caught in my own hypocrisy. Damn it. <laughs> well, it, but a full acceptance of him has been a wonderful thing for all of us. Yeah, we, and so his transition, uh, actually you and I met because you hired me to do a strategic planning session for the Equality Center here locally, right? And so uh, in that I had to do focus group meetings and one of the, just to get up to speed and, you know, what are the issues so I could be prepared for the three days that we hold up, you know, to talk about the future of the Equality Center. And when I met with the transgender group, they said um, that they couldn't wait to move away from Tulsa because they didn't want, they, they were glad that people were advocates, but they didn't want, or they want, what they did want was just to go somewhere where the story wasn't who they were, but who they were in their, their new life. They just wanted to move on. And it wasn't an, out of embarrassment or anything. It was just, gosh, we're just ready to, to turn the page. We're done with this. It's been so right. traumatic to get here. So I don't know. Do you think he has the, I know at one point he was going to move to Portland and then he didn't, I mean, yeah. where is he on that journey? He loves Tulsa and he loves his friends here. Uh, when Crystal and I moved to Tulsa, being a part of the LGBT community and helping with issues was huge for us. And so he participated in that for a long time. He went to the support group for LGBT things. And, um, and I think you're very correct that he's one of those that just wants to, I don't necessarily think he'll always stay in Tulsa. I mean, Portland always calls his name, uh, but kind of that het, for an LGBT family, He's very heteronormative now, you know, he has a girlfriend and, you know, it's just, uh, he's very liberal and open-minded, but he just wants to live his own, what he perceives to be his normal. And so we'll support whatever he wants to do in that all behind him. I know you're so proud of him as you should yeah. be. He's, he's an amazing young man and, and wicked good looking. <laughs> he's just... He's a wonderful guy and he's got a heart of gold. We've had all of our normal problems. You know, there's no, there's people that kind of follow us on Facebook and things like that, that think we're family goals or whatever. And there's nobody that argues more passionately than he and I, or Crystal and I. It's not, not every day is a happy, pretty day in our, in the McDaniel Groves household. But um, I think because I, I think he gets away with, he could get away with more with me because my family also shuns him. So they began to shun him when he accepted me. And then when he came out as transgender, that was the final nail in that coffin. So he adores my family and misses them so much, but they will have literally nothing to do with him. Mm. Listen, the documentary that you're referencing was, um, done on oxygen and so people can tune in and watch that and as we watched it even even watching that back over the two nights that they 
I learned more things about you and the struggle. One of the things that sticks with me is watching you pull up to your parents' house, standing outside the car, knowing that, I'm, yeah, with a shaky voice, I'm even saying that, that you can't just go, you just can't go knock on the door, right? You can, or they won't answer the door, right? Right, right. They don't, Oliver has reached out to them and said, could I just drive down? Because he's not technically disfellowshipped, he reached out and said, could I come down and take you to lunch and let's just talk? And they said, my mother said to him, I'm sorry, it's just been too long. I can't, I can't do that. And then when, when Oliver went to their house and said, he basically wanted an explanation of how they could continue this. Um, and he said, mom's outside. And keep in mind, I haven't seen them in 10 years. Um, and my dad said, it's okay that you're in here. You're not disfellowshipped, but you know, you know, your mother is disfellowshipped. And for that reason, we can't speak to her. And so to be that close to, and it's my mother I miss the most. I just want to see her face. I want to not asking for a hug. I'm not asking for a commitment to have a meal with me. Nothing like that. I just, sometimes you just need to lay eyes on them. And, um, that they're not interested in that is kind of soul crushing. About once a month, I go through a, a small meltdown that my wife has to put up with. Well, you know? that's the, the ultimate rejection when your parents, especially your mother, especially as close as you were for 40 years, no way that doesn't play out on a daily basis for you. Right. So how do you reconcile that? That I have to give her that. They've, I got to walk away and be who I need to be. Um, she also gets to make that choice on a daily basis. And so I've asked for the independence. I just wanted to walk away from the organization and keep that relationship intact. But I wasn't given that. There are worse things in the world that people are dealing with. Do you, you think know? you'll ever leave? Mother? Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. No, it takes a real stick to itiveness, loyalty to that organization to be in it as long as she has. And once you're in there a long time, uh, Tracy, I had to learn how to, I, we couldn't say good luck to anyone. We couldn't say Merry Christmas to anyone. We couldn't, I had to learn how to be a person. My mother at her age would literally, I think she would die outside that bubble because she doesn't know how to function as a normal adult. She doesn't have worldly friends or just the day-to-day -day of, I had to learn politics from you guys. I had to learn what my obligations were as far as voting and that it's okay to say good luck Tracy you know there's no there's no demonic intent in me saying good luck to you the very strange and they call it their own theocratic language and they definitely have a theocratic language that no one else would understand mm. I, I it always makes me smile when you call us worldly <laughs> Yeah, I think that's an interesting term uh, for some reason. I don't know. Um, You're taking it as a compliment. Yes, I am. <laughs> World, yes, I'm, I am quite worldly. <laughs> uh, there, there's a super dark side to your story. I don't want to go too far into it, but I just want people to know on top of all of this, there was an incredibly inappropriate behavior that was inflicted upon you as a young right. person. Right. And as I said, um, I've interviewed you before that I wanted to throat punch Ronnie and I'm using uh -huh. his name intentionally. Uh -huh. um, and the documentary lays all that out. That was what I was most 
disturbed by, although I'll, it's all disturbing, Deb, it, it is, yeah. but for that piece, and I, I don't think you can even talk about that today. Is that true? Do you, are you, is there? Uh, no, I can. You can, okay. I can, yeah. Okay. There's details of it that I cannot because okay. we're involved in, in litigation, yeah. Okay. And that's the question I was gonna ask. You're still pursuing trying to um, save or mm, trying to help people that are still part of that religion. And in right. what way are you doing that? Well, I belong to several groups um, where people can reach out to me. And I did a podcast recently where not just Jehovah's Witnesses, but people of high control religions. And I won't mention their names. I don't want to get targeted for that. But people, even not Jehovah's Witnesses, reach out to me and say, I was raised in this. I grew up in it. Or and now I'm gay. Now I know I'm gay. What do I do? How do I leave? It's the only thing I know. I do have a, a unique insight into how not to just pack the bag and go, but to how to mentally walk that out. Mm. Because you're gonna be you're gonna be in the gutter for a year. You're gonna be in the gutter longer than that if you don't get counseling, if you don't um, see it for what it is, and if you don't ex start exposing yourself to new friends and new norms then you'll stay there. And a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses do, they stay there because it's, even if it's painful, that's their comfort. That's, I mean, their family's there, they can't. I would say more often than not, it passes through Witnesses' minds on a regular basis. What would my life be like if I could get out? Yeah. And because of, I, I would still be there probably if not for the trauma of my youth that took place there. That was a real motivator once I realized that they were covering up crime and that had affected, it changed who I was, the very being of me. I didn't want, I got more angry all the time. And so I, when the documentary came out, you know, they were, people were just livid that I could talk bad about a well-meaning organization. And they do have some excellent programs. They, they, by and large are honest people, good people, but they don't know what's happening at the upper levels of the organization where they're willing to cover up anything to, um, to keep the pristine look of their organization. So a lot of my um, anxiety, I think, not anxiety, just kind of frustration is having a friend circle like you and Rosemary or um, our other friends that we're very close to, and I've told you this before, that you are well known and acknowledged because you've done the work, like you've, you got the education, you pursued being who you were supposed to be, and people look up to you for that. Um, same with our other friend who was in nursing, you know, she's, she's done the work. And it seems like in the last 10 years, go, going to conferences and speaking, um, when we went to London in that conference, speaking about the problem, speaking about the issue to notable people felt good, but I felt like that I'm, I've become known as the person that was abused in the organization and people I love like you did the work and got the education to be who they are. And so I wish sometimes that that's the position I was in, you know what I'm saying? I think so. I'm, I'm trying, uh, I'm trying to connect with that because 
are you saying that you wish you would have stayed gone at 18 and not gone back? And is I'm that saying I don't want to be famous for being the abused kid. Fair. That's fair. And so when I go to a conference and speak about that, or when I do a podcast or something like that, I don't want to be remembered as the abused kid. And that's not where, that's not the foundation of your career. You know right. what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying, um, but I want to say this to you. You will help so many more people than I ever will. And not that it's a competition, but whatever the origin of that is, I would just cheer you on to embrace that and not judge it. Because, you know, there are things that will come out of that documentary, that will come out of the lawsuit, that will come out of the book that you've written, that will come out of this conversation that will change people in a much bigger way than me telling people how to have tough conversations with their employees, right? Or, uh, you know, some of those things. So, so let's just agree that our okay. platforms, both of us, um, let's do good with those platforms and not, and not worry too much about how we got there. I'm trying to let you off the hook. Maybe that's not what I'm supposed to do. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't see you as that though. I don't see you as a victim. I see you as somebody that's overcome that and you have a story. Right. So I see you as someone incredibly brave, super connected to um, what happened objectively. Still, you still have a bunch of feelings about it, but that you're going back and saying, don't let this shit happen to you or your your family. So I don't see you as a victim in that. I don't feel like a victim anymore. I just wish and I know that a lot of people would rewrite their story if they could. For sure. Um. I, I think it had I been allowed to get a college education, had I been allowed to take a job, um, you know, they didn't want me to work at all. They wanted me to stay home and not work. Um, had I been allowed to be who I felt like I always was, I just feel like it robbed me of a lot of time. We're so grateful for the friend circle that we have now, but I wish I had been allowed to make friend circles even back in high school. You know, a high school person will reach out to me now and say, you know, now I know, now I know why you were never at prom, why you were never allowed to go get a hamburger. I mean, literally, if you go get a hamburger with a high school friend, the elders will meet with you and talk to you about it and admonish you on the, the danger of opening yourself up to someone. And you talk about, I mean, my wife had to teach me how to really love somebody without thinking it's all going to end or... This isn't inappropriate, yeah. you know, we're, cause she and I were good friends first. And even that was alarming to the elders um, that you have a friend that's not a witness. So I, I watch you guys and I watch our other friends and I think I wish I should just go with what I have. But sometimes I just wish that I had that, that basis, that different foundation when I was younger. Yeah, I think you're right, though. We all have those moments that we think, I wish it would have been different. Listen, I wish I would have been, you know, brave. I would I would consider you incredibly brave. I would consider me late to the brave story. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I was not. I believe out. that, though. I <laughs> believe that. So true. I was such a chicken. It was so true. I, you know, I did not want, uh, well, as you know, my parents disowned me. And then, you know, so I think, okay, well, I can never tell anybody anything about my personal life. And so, you know, I, where my regret is, is I didn't just embrace that and be authentic and be out 
you know, I, I would watch people be out and be advocates. And I would think, gosh, I'm grateful they're doing that for us, but I was not willing to advocate on my own behalf, right? So I have regrets too. So many people look up to you though, you know, we'll say, um, I'll word something some way like, or somebody will want to visit and I'll say, I'm not, in the, I'm not in the mood to have company. I'll tell Crystal, I just don't wanna, I wanted to have this weekend by herself. Could we, <laughs> I'll say, what would Tracy tell them? You know, because I know that you'll, I don't know if you've always been that way, but it, there's this directness. And so like when a witness calls at our door, when we had a house in town, you know, a witness would call at our door and I, I, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings always because politeness is big in the witnesses. Um, and I think you, you're polite, but you've kind of, I've learned from you that it's okay to be direct. It's okay to state your needs is what you always say. And so my needs now are in this stage of my life are to be heard. If I, if I don't want this, then it's okay to say that. If I do want this, then it's okay for me to tell you that. Um, and isn't so we always freedom? feel safe doing that now. Isn't that freedom? That's what freedom is, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Like I, you, you were, you didn't have that. Uh, and I'm sad about that, but listen, I want to say this to you. I'm, I am so proud of you truly. You. I mean, I, you know, I've, I have had a front row seat to watch what's happened and I'm just really proud of you. You know, it's, it oh, is, hi. well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's touching to know what you've gone through. And even in the beginning of our friendship, there were times I know you were like, what? Like you just are reserved. There's a wall at times. Yep. And I know that's not about us or me or what I know that's about 40 years of programming or 33 if you right. take seven your first seven years right and so for you to keep walking your truth every day and that you didn't go back again and it's been yeah. comfortable you have you have had to learn so much so yeah. I'm just proud of you I, I love you I'm proud of you love you too love all you right. too all right friend well listen uh I I think uh we went well beyond our time but so worth it I could talk to you all day as you know same same. And so I want to say this, if you're just, if you're just late to the party, go back and start this podcast over. My guest today is Debbie McDaniel. She's the author of Out With Consequences, and she has a documentary on oxygen. What is the name of that documentary? Remind me. It's called The Witnesses. The Witnesses. Mm -hmm. All right. And yep. so uh, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks for having me. I'll see thank you me. soon, I hope. Love you, friend. Love you. Thanks for listening. Subscribe and join us next week.